The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict by Simona Sharoni and Mohammed Abu Nimer. The Arab-Israeli conflict, and especially the question of Palestine, has dominated Middle Eastern politics in the 20th and 21st centuries. Consequently, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is among the most researched topics and also receives regular and prominent coverage in the global media. In this chapter, we provide a framework for understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in all its complexities by focusing not only on political violence, but also on the ongoing struggles for justice and peace in Israel and Palestine. Uniquely co-authored by two conflict resolution scholars, an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian Arab who holds Israeli citizenship, our chapter is also informed by our lifelong involvement in efforts to bring about a just and lasting solution to the conflict. All too often, media accounts and academic scholarship on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have fallen into a trap of false symmetry. Typically, the conflict has been presented as an intractable struggle between two national movements with competing claims over the same territory. Such an interpretation obscures the asymmetrical power relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinians, both in the past and in the present. For example, it is seldom recognized that the creation of Israel in 1948 which affirmed the national aspirations of the Jews, came at the expense of Palestinians, whose desire for self-determination and territorial sovereignty remains largely unfulfilled. A successful resolution of this conflict depends to a great extent on the recognition of structural inequalities and the ability to devise a framework to transform these power relations. Understanding the history of the conflict is crucial, although historical narratives are never simple or objective and always reflect particular political positions. A description of the parties to the conflict provides a context for understanding their contending historical narratives. What follows is our overview of central turning points and crucial dynamics throughout the history of the conflict with a focus on the core issues and points of contention. We conclude the chapter with an examination of attempts to resolve the conflict, foregrounding the conditions and processes that are essential to a just and lasting resolution. Palestinians and Israeli Jews, Identities and Communities in Conflict The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has played a central role not only in the daily lives of people throughout the Middle East, but also in the lives of Palestinians and Jews living outside Israel and the occupied territories, many of whom see their existence as inseparable from political developments in the region. Many scholarly and media accounts, however, tend to overlook this fact. They instead presuppose the existence of two cohesive and unified parties locked into a conflict, devoting little or no attention to differences not only between but also within 
Palestinian and Israeli-Jewish collectivities. Because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has played a central role in shaping the collective identities of Jews and Palestinians, including through delegitimization of the community's identity claims, we need to employ a more complex analysis of the two national collectivities with attention to changes in representations of identity and community and the relationship between Palestinians and Israeli Jews. The terms Palestinians and Israelis, which are currently common in both media and scholarly accounts, were once in themselves a topic of contention. In fact, until the mid-1970s, many Jews in Israel and elsewhere, as well as numerous politicians, scholars, and media analysts worldwide, refused to use the term Palestinians, negating Palestinians' rights to self-determination and territorial sovereignty. The term Palestinians has been integrated into the mainstream discourse on the conflict only since the 1980s. It has been used almost exclusively, including in Israel, in both scholarly and popular references to the conflict. Following the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993 and the establishment of the Palestinian National Authority, the term Palestine has replaced other formulations such as the territories and the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The use of the term Israelis originated with the establishment of Israel on May 15, 1948, when the collective reference to Jews was replaced by the term Israelis. Although large segments of the international community immediately adopted the term, until the 1990s, the Arab countries and a handful of sympathizers with the Palestinian cause including several national liberation movements, refused to recognize the legitimacy of Israel. Thus, they avoided the use of the term Israelis, using instead such terms as Jews or Zionists. The prevalent use of the terms Israelis and Palestinians underscores the views that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is first and foremost a conflict between two national movements that claim the same piece of land. The widespread use of these terms signals more than a semantic shift. It points to a growing recognition by the international community of both parties' identity claims and connection to the land of Palestine-Israel, and that these claims do not have to be mutually exclusive. The term Palestinians refers to the Arabs, Christian, Muslim, and Druze, who have lived in Palestine for centuries. The number of Palestinians worldwide is estimated at more than 6 million, and they are usually divided into three major subgroups. Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, those who live inside Israel's pre-1967 borders and hold Israeli citizenship, and those who live in the diaspora. The Palestinian diaspora is a direct result of the creation of Israel, which resulted in the destruction of Palestinian Arab society, dispersing hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to lives in exile or as refugees. According to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, 
Nearly one-third of the registered Palestinian refugees, more than 1.5 million individuals, live in 58 recognized Palestine refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Almost 70% of the inhabitants of the Gaza Strip and 15% of the inhabitants of the West Bank have lived in refugee camps since 1948. The experience of occupation and displacement fueled a national liberation struggle, which was led and represented by the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. Since its establishment in 1964, the PLO played a central role in the politicization of Palestinian society and in the consolidation of a collective Palestinian identity. The creation of the PLO with the support of the Arab League marked a move by Palestinians toward self-determination and independence from the Arab regimes. The PLO served as the umbrella organization for different political factions with varying ideological orientations and operative strategies. The major factions included Fatah, the largest group, headed by Yasser Arafat, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, DF, DFLP, and the Palestine Communist Party, PCP. The differences between these political factions notwithstanding, Palestinians and many within the international community viewed the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. The social, economic, and religious makeup of Palestinian society has shaped both internal and external political debates. For Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and in Israel, a place of residence often reflects their socioeconomic status. Working-class Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, many of whom worked until recently in Israel, reside in refugee camps and in villages. The villages are also home to peasants, whereas the elites and petit bourgeois class, which includes merchants, traders, and professionals, can often be found in the urban centers. Social class often shapes access to education, while at the same time, education can serve as a catalyst of upward class mobility. Nevertheless, the educational experience of Palestinians is more complex, depending not only on social class, but also on the geographical location, historical context, and political conditions. For example, during the 1987 Palestinian uprising, known as the Intif, Palestinians' access to education in the West Bank and Gaza Strip was restricted due to the widespread closure of educational institutions by the Israeli military and the arrest, imprisonment, or expulsion of professors and students. Additionally, over the past three decades, the complex system of checkpoints, barriers, and the separation wall utilized by Israel have imposed serious obstacles for Palestinians pursuing high, higher education opportunities, both in Palestine and abroad. 
Despite these difficult circumstances, Palestinians have the highest per capita rate of university graduation in the Arab world and one of the highest worldwide. Another fact that is often overlooked is that not all Palestinians are Muslims. Palestinian Christians live as a minority in both the West Bank and Israel. Nevertheless, due to the historical and political challenges that Palestinians have endured, religious differences within Palestinian society have by and large been able been set aside as Palestinians have sought unity under the banner of national liberation and self-determination. In recent decades, political Islam has come to play a more prominent role within Palestinian society and politics. Israelis. The term Israelis, which has been in use only since the establishment of the state in 1948, invokes biblical references to the people of Israel and to the ancient Israelites. Yet scholars have pointed out numerous inconsistencies in the theses that suggest that the Jews who presently reside in Israel are the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Most scholarly and media accounts of the conflict use the term Israelis because they assume a natural overlap between the state and its citizens. However, this usage is highly misleading because one-sixth of Israel's population consists of Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. The term Israeli Jews or Jews who live in Israel, who, which is used in this chapter, more accurately describes this party to the conflict. Israeli Jewish society is represented as a Zionist society, morally, politically, and technically. The moral aspect of this identification is grounded in the presupposition that, because of anti-Semitism, Jews were not safe as religious or cultural minorities elsewhere. The political aspect of Zionism involves three projects, the mobilization of Jews throughout the world to immigrate to Palestine, the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, namely Israel, and the mobilization of moral and material support from Jews and non-Jews worldwide for the continued existence of Israel as a Jewish state. Finally, Israel is a Zionist society technically in that its legal structure and the routine of its everyday life are determined in every domain by the distinction between Jews and non-Jews. Israeli society is deeply divided, with inequalities and tensions not only between Jews and non-Jews, but also within the Israeli Jewish population. Comprising approximately 74.5% of Israel's overall population, the Jewish population in Israel is quite heterogeneous, including immigrants from numerous countries and reflecting a variety of ethnic and linguistic groups, religious preferences, and cultural, historical, and political backgrounds. The two main ethnic groupings are the Ashkenazi Jews, who originated mostly in Europe and North America, and the Misraki Jews, whose origins can be traced mainly to North Africa and the Middle East. The term Misrakim, Orientals in Hebrew, is gradually replacing earlier terms, 
such as Sephardim, previously used to refer to the segment of Israel's population. Another term that has been in use recently in reference to this group is Arab Jews, a term that highlights the socio-cultural similarities between Jews from the Middle East and North Africa and their fellow Arabs. The Israeli establishment sought to suppress these similarities, using the Arab-Israeli conflict as an excuse, and the same excuse was used to downplay the disparities in power and privilege between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews. These disparities have remained largely unaddressed as the Israeli establishment utilized the salience of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to establish unity in the face of the enemy and to construct a strong sense of national identity. The centrality of the conflict has also shaped the Israeli political system and the leading political parties. Nevertheless, in the past three decades, elections have averaged over a dozen parties on the ballot. Following the January 2015 elections, for example, 17 parties gained representation in the 34th Israeli parliament, and 39 parties ran in the 2019 elections. To date, no party has ever won a majority of seats in an election. As a result, all Israeli governments have involved coalitions comprised of two parties or more. Historically, the two principal political parties in Israel have been Labour and Likud. The Labour Party, which is predominantly Ashkenazi and secular, controlled Israeli politics between 1948 and 1977. Its original ideology has undergone significant transformations in recent years as it has attempted to reconcile the tensions between Zionism, socialism, and democratic practices. Over the years, the party's positions and policies on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have been mixed. Officially, the party supports a land-for-peace solution, and therefore is generally perceived to be more moderate and willing to compromise than Likud. At the same time, the Labour Party encouraged the construction of settlements in the West Bank and Gaza Strip after 1967, was tough in dealing with the First Intifada, and for many years opposed the establishment of an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. More recently, however, the Labour Party, and especially Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin, were credited with making a significant step toward peace with the signing of the Oslo Accords. The Likud Party, which came to power for the first time in 1977, is more conservative economically and religiously than labor and enjoys more support among Mizrahi and working-class Jews. The party has traditionally taken a more hardline stance on the Arab-Israeli conflict in general, and the Palestinian issue in particular. Its original platform claimed Jewish sovereignty over all territories occupied by Israel in 1967, with the exception of the Sinai, which was returned to Egypt following the signing of the Camp David Accords in 1979. 
Likud and Labour alternated in power between 1984 and 1996, when the Likud party, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, defeated Labour in the May elections. Although Likud initially opposed the Oslo Accords and the subsequent agreements and vowed to derail their implementation, its position was somewhat modified due to both internal and international pressure. The policies of the four Netanyahu-led governments led to a major stalemate in the negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. Far from the promise to lead Israel back to the negotiation table and to deliver peace with security, the Netanyahu-led coalition governments have enhanced the military repression against Palestinians, escalating tensions in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The History and Dynamics of the Conflict History has thus played a central role in shaping people's collective identities, perceptions of one another, and general attitudes toward the conflict. As a result, the framework and conditions for a just and lasting peace will be difficult to reach. Thus, the question is not whether to deal with history, but rather how to approach history with a focus on bridging contending historical narratives and identifying possible scenarios for a shared future. Toward this end, we examine a number of significant turning points in the history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, with a focus on the differences and similarities in narratives of these events. Modern Zionism, Settler Colonialism, and the Partition of Palestine the Zionist movement emerged in the late 19th century in Europe in response to the rise of European nationalism and anti-Semitism. During and after the Holocaust, which increased the flow of Jewish immigrants to Palestine, the Zionist movement gained significant international recognition and support. As with many other contested terms, the meanings and practices associated with Zionism depend on the particular standpoint of the person or group defining it. Although there are different strands of Zionism, socialist or non-socialist, religious or secular, for most Jews, Zionism is a movement for Jewish national self-determination designed to restore their right to live in the land of their ancestors. Palestinians and many others, however, view Zionism as an exclusive ideology that underlies a settler colonial movement responsible for the occupation of Palestine and the dispossession and exploitation of its indigenous population. The divergent narratives of this historical turning point by Palestinians and Jews reflect not only their differing views of Zionism as an ideology and as a political project, but also their perspectives regarding the origins of the conflict. According to prevalent Jewish interpretations, Zionism was an attempt to end a centuries-old conflict by ensuring the return of Jews to the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, which God promised to Abraham and his descendants. In contrast, Palestinians contend 
that the origins of Israeli-Palestinian conflict lie not in the Bible, but rather in Zionist ideology and its implementation in Palestine through policies that are reminiscent of other settler colonialist projects around the world. Many conventional accounts of the conflict overlook the fact that Palestine was not a land without people for the people without a land, as the Zionist slogan proclaimed. It had an existing indigenous population that sought independence, first from the Ottoman rulers and later from British colonialism. According to dominant narratives, Jewish immigration to Palestine precipitated a century-old clash between two national movements struggling for self-determination and territorial sovereignty. In contrast, Palestinian historians contend that the root cause of the Palestinians' dispossession lies in two political decisions made in Europe. The first decision was made in 1897 by the World Zionist Organization, which met in Basel, Switzerland, and resolved to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. The second, known as the Balfour Declaration, was made by the British in 1917, undermining the rights of the indigenous Palestinian population and promising to support the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Given this context, the collision between Zionism and Palestinian nationalism was almost inevitable and escalated into violent confrontations in 1920 in Jerusalem, in 1921 in Tel Aviv Jaffa and the surrounding areas, and in 1929 in Jerusalem and Hebron. One of the most dramatic escalations of the conflict occurred during the Arab Revolt, which lasted from 1936 to 1939. This revolt was the longest running Palestinian protest against British support for Jewish colonization of Palestinian lands. Supported by a broad grassroots movement, the revolt was not limited to armed struggle, but involved nonviolent resistance, including strikes, non-payment of taxes, and other forms of civil disobedience. The first period of the revolt ended at the request of the newly formed Arab Higher Committee for Palestine, which urged Palestinians to wait for the outcome of deliberations by the Palestinian Royal Commission, known as the Peel Commission, which was set up by Britain to investigate the situation. The revolt's second stage was sparked by the Peel Commission's report recommending the partition of Palestine into two states in order to accommodate the competing claims of Palestinians and Jews, which resulted in further escalation of the situation, with Zionist, Palestinian, and British forces fighting for control. Given the fierce resistance to the plan among both Palestinians and Jews, Britain was eventually forced to abandon the 1937 partition plan, Nevertheless, partition plans continued to surface. These became particularly popular and gained international legitimacy in the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust, which resulted in the near destruction of the Jewish people in Europe, as well as gypsies, homosexuals, disabled persons, and others deemed undesirable by the Nazis. 
The best known is the 1947 United Nations Partition Plan, also known as Resolution 181, which called for the creation of a Jewish state and an Arab state in Palestine. The plan, which indicated that the British mandate over the area was to end on May 15, 1948, gave the new Jewish state 57% of Palestine, including the fertile coastal region. Palestinians viewed this proposal as fundamentally flawed and unjust, since at the time Jews rep represented only about 33% of the population and owned only 7% of the land. Indeed, UN estimates suggest that the division of territory spelled out in the 1947 partition plan would have given the Jewish state economic revenues three times as great as those of the Palestinian state. On November 29, 1947, the General Assembly voted in favor of this particular plan. The Zionist response to Resolution 181 was to endorse it with reservations, insisting that the Jewish homeland be distinctively Jewish rather than religiously and ethnically pluralistic. At the same time, Zionist leaders did not abandon the conviction that eventually all of Palestine should come under Jewish control. From the Palestinian perspective, the UN partition plan was an illegal and illegitimate attempt to divide Palestine. Moreover, Palestinians feared that the establishment of two states would result in the expulsion of Palestinians who lived in areas that fell within the designated territory of the Jewish state. Contrary to common representations of this event that tend to portray Palestinians as rejectionists, unwilling to compromise, the Arab leadership in and outside Palestine did not simply reject the partition plan. It endorsed the alternative proposal of the UN Special Committee on Palestine, which called for a single unified state in Palestine that would be democratic and secular and grant equal rights to all its citizens. The UN vote on partition sparked an unprecedented wave of violence which escalated into a full-fledged war following the establishment of Israel on May 14, 1948. The differences in the historical narratives of this event promoted by Palestinians and Jews are most evident in the ways in which they refer to this war. Jews refer to it as a war of independence, marking the fulfillment of their national aspirations with the establishment of Israel. For Palestinians, however, the 1948 war, known as Al-Nakba, which means the catastrophe, meant disaster and destruction. In the course of the war, the Palestinian community was virtually destroyed. Approximately 780,000 Palestinians became refugees as a direct result of Israel's establishment. Some Palestinians fled Others were driven out by force, and 418 Arab villages were destroyed or depopulated. The war ended with the establishment of Israel on roughly 77% of the total area of Palestine. The remaining 23% was divided between Jordan, which gained control over the West Bank, and Egypt, 
which took upon itself the administration of the Gaza Strip. The Arab-Israeli Conflict In most literature on the conflict, the years since the establishment of Israel are often divided into six periods, May 1948 to June 1967, June 1967 to November 1977, November 1977 to December 1987, December 1987 to September 1991, 1991 to 2000, and 2000 to the present. 1948 to 1967. From the Nakba and the establishment of Israel to the occupation. After 1948, Palestinians were in a state of shock and despair. The difficult circumstances and the lack of political leadership and economic resources forced them into a state of dependency on neighboring Arab states. As a result, until 1967, with the exception of the establishment of the PLO in 1964, Palestinian nationalism was for the most part muted. Resistance to Israel was expressed primarily by Arab leaders residing outside Palestine. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Israeli-Palestinian divide, Israeli Jews worked to build a Western-style Jewish state in the middle of the Arab world. Consequently, the Palestinians who remained in Israel after the 1948 war were viewed as a problem for the evolving Jewish state. They were placed under military rule until 1966 and subjected to a slew of discriminatory regulations under the pretexts of Israel's national security. The June 1967 war, which Israelis refer to as the Six-Day War, is one of the most significant turning points in the history of the conflict. It dramatically changed the map of the Middle East, resulting in Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, the Sinai, and the Golan Heights. Contrary to conventional Israeli interpretations, however, which have insisted that the disputed territories were captured in a war of self-defense, ample evidence illustrates that Israel initiated the war under the pretext of a preemptive attack. At the conclusion of the war, Israel's conquest appeared to be just temporary. In fact, on June 19, 1967, the Israeli cabinet voted unanimously to give back the Sinai to Egypt and the Golan Heights to Syria in return for demilitarization and peace. With regard to Jordan, Israel demanded border adjustments, citing security reasons, but the status of Jerusalem was considered non-negotiable. The city was unified and declared an indivisible part of Israel. Despite Resolution 242, which was unanimously adopted on November 22, 1967, and called for Israeli withdrawal from the territories occupied during the war, Israel objected to a complete withdrawal and refused to withdraw from any territory before a peace treaty was signed. Syria rejected the resolution altogether, and Egypt and Jordan refused to sign a peace treaty prior to Israel's withdrawal. 1967-1977 From War to Diplomacy 
Israel's 1967 victory and its conquest of the remaining 23% of Palestine left Egypt, Syria, and Jordan shocked and humiliated and turned Palestinians' hopes to a deep sense of despair. Those Palestinians who were not forced to flee, many for the second time, and become refugees in the surrounding Arab countries, were subjected to harsh military laws imposed by Israel. In addition, large amounts of land were confiscated to build Jewish settlements in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, to which Israeli officials started referring with the biblical names of Judea and Samaria. Jewish settlement construction in the occupied territories began within six months with massive government support. Around the same time, Palestinians suffered a major setback. The civil war in Jordan in 1970, which was characterized by daily violent confrontations between Palestinian militias and the Jordanian regime, undermined Palestinian efforts to strengthen the national movement outside Palestine. The months of buildup escalated into 11 days of bloodshed, often referred to as Black September, resulting in the killing of thousands of Palestinians and Jordanians. Black September marked the end of the close relationship between the Palestinian leadership and the Jordanian regime, destroying the political and military infrastructure established by the PLO in Jordan. Consequently, the PLO began building bases in Lebanon, while at the same time establishing the infrastructure for a Palestinian resistance movement in the occupied territories. The 1973 war, to which Israelis refer as the Yom Kippur War, represents another significant turning point in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict the last war between Israel and an allied Arab force. The war began on October 6, 1973, with a coordinated attack launched by Egypt and Syria. After a massive airlift of advanced military equipment from the United States, Israel was able to turn things around. By the conclusion of the war on October 24th, Israel had recaptured most of the Sinai territory from which it was forced to retreat and solidified its hold over, over the Golan Heights. This military victory notwithstanding, the 1973 war was politically costly for Israel. It ended the collective sense of euphoria created in the aftermath of the 1967 war. The early losses in the war also shattered the illusion of military invincibility, clearing the way for a more realistic assessment of the Arab-Israeli conflict. For Palestinians, the 1973 war marked another chapter in the growing disillusionment with the ability of Arab states to lead the struggle over Palestine. As a result, Palestinians stepped up efforts to seek independent representation through the National Resistance Movement, led by the PLO. Arafat's election as chairperson of the organization in 1969 represented an important milestone in the Palestinians' struggle for self-determination and international recognition of the PLO as the sole representative of the Palestinian people.
By 1974, Palestinians were able to alert the international community to the plight of their people, achieve independent representation in many international bodies, including the UN and its related organizations, and gain recognition on the world stage. Throughout this period, Israel refused to recognize Palestinians' existence and right of self-determination. Nineteen seventy seven to nineteen eighty seven. From Camp David to the First Intifada. Contrary to the gloomy predictions of many analysts, the unexpected victory of the right wing Likud party in the nineteen seventy seven elections resulted in a temporary de escalation of the Arab Israeli conflict. In November, just a few months after Likud came to power, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat surprised the Israeli government and public, as well as the Arab world and the international community, when he became the first Arab head of state to visit Jerusalem. The historic visit co coincided with the emergence of a distinct peace movement in Israel, Peace Now. Founded in 1978 by reserve officers and soldiers, the group criticized the Israeli government for not doing enough to bring about peace with Egypt. Although Peace Now could not take as much credit for this development, the Israeli and Egyptian governments began direct negotiations that year, and in 1979, Israel signed a formal peace treaty with Egypt, often referred to as the Camp David Accords. The Camp David Accords have been viewed as significant in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because of the problematic manner in which they addressed the Palestinian dimension of the Arab-Israeli conflict and because they enabled the United States to establish itself as a major peace broker in the region and thus increased the sp sphere of U.S. power and influence. The Accords contained two documents one of which was titled A Framework for Peace in the Middle East and focused on the question of Palestine. Nevertheless, the document provoked strong negative reactions from the Palestinians due to its vague formulation of the nature of Palestinian autonomy and the failure to recognize the PLO as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. It soon became clear that the governments of Menachem Begin had no intention of allowing the Camp David Accords to lead to an Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza Strip. To the contrary, in the 1980s, Israel pursued its plan to lay the foundation for the permanent retention of the occupied territories. The government expanded settlement construction, applied Israeli laws to Jewish settlers, residing in these areas and took additional steps in such areas as transportation, communication, and economic activity to link the West Bank and Gaza more closely to Israel and to blur the 1967 border, often referred to as the Green Line. For Palestinians, this period was characterized by harsh economic conditions and growing dependency on Israel a shortage of adequate housing, 
A crisis in education and deteriorating school facilities, and many other problems that became more acute as a result of the Israeli occupation. Its reservations regarding the Camp David Accords, notwithstanding, the PLO during this period began to signal its readiness for a political settlement. Israel refused to acknowledge, let alone act on. The softening in the PLO's public statements and political agenda. Instead, it took actions to remove the remaining elected Palestinian leaders in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and to set up instead the village leagues, whose Arab members were appointed by Israel and thus lacked credibility among Palestinians. These clashes between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers in March, April, and May, nineteen eighty-two. Another significant event during this period was the emergence of popular committees, including women's rights, women's groups, and labor unions, across the West Bank and Gaza Strip. These local committees were affiliated with various factions of the PLO and established to address the service needs of the Palestinian community. In 1978, in an attempt to prevent the PLO's rise to power, the Israeli government attacked the PLO's headquarters and bases in Lebanon, triggering ongoing military confrontations across the Israeli-Lebanese border. And heightened tensions between Israel and the Arab states. In June 1982, Israeli troops invaded Lebanon for the second time, instigating what became the most controversial war in Israel's history. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 marked a serious escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Israeli government's decision to inflict damage on the PLO's political and military bases in Lebanon stemmed directly from the insistence of most members of the Israeli government at the time that the PLO was the source of unrest and trouble in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Israel's officially stated goals were to move Palestinian fighters out of range of northern Galilee. And to eliminate the PLO's political and military infrastructure in Lebanon. Yet Israeli troops proceeded into Lebanon beyond the 25 miles initially announced, encircling and bombing Beirut in an effort to force the evacuation of Arafat and the PLO. Israel agreed to stop the bombing only after the completion of the PLO's evacuation in late August 1982. The ceasefire did not last long. In mid-September 1982, following the assassination of newly elected Lebanese President Bashir Gamayel, Israeli troops returned to Beirut, occupying the entire city and sealing off the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, home to many Palestinians and poor Lebanese. These actions precipitated one of the most tragic events. In the history of the conflict, the Sabra and Shatila massacre. The massacre was carried out by Lebanese Maronite Christians, who 
were known for their hatred of Palestinians, with Israeli knowledge and, according to some accounts, even tacit approval. Forty hours later, when the camps were finally unsealed, the body count reached 700 to 800 people, according to Israeli government um, estimates, the majority of whom were civilians, including many women and children. Containing accounts indicated that the number of people murdered was perhaps as high as 1,500 or 2,000. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon reinvigorated existing Israeli peace groups, such as Peace Now and the Committee for Solidarity with Berzit University. In addition, the invasion triggered the emergence of new protest groups, such as Parents Against Silence, Women Against the Invasion of Lebanon, and Yeshkful. Literally, there is a limit. Questioning the legitimacy and morality of war, Yashkvul called on Israeli soldiers to refuse to serve in Lebanon. In addition to hundreds of soldiers signing petitions, declaring that they were prepared to take this course of action, a significant number of soldiers were sent to jail for their refusal to carry out an order. For the first time in Israel's history, Israeli citizens not only questioned their government's policies, but also took to the streets to voice their discontent. From the beginning of the invasion, a flurry of protest activities included vigils and demonstrations in the streets and on university campuses, anti-war petitions, and letters to the editor. The first national demonstration against the war on June 26, 1982, drew approximately 20,000 Israelis who demanded the immediate withdrawal of their country's army from Lebanon. A few months later, in response to the Sabra and Shatila massacre, Israel witnessed its largest demonstration ever, according to Peace Now and media reports. About 400,000 people participated. Political protest intensified following the publication of the report, by a special inquiry commission set up to investigate Israeli involvement in the Sabra and Shatila massacre. The commission's report and the public debates it triggered, coupled with the widespread anti-war demonstrations, which lasted until the partial Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in 1985, signaled a gradual erosion of the Israeli consensus regarding issues of peace and security. For Palestinians, the defeat of the PLO in Lebanon resulted in internal fragmentation and disputes among the different PLO factions, as well as among the Arab countries that supported them. At the same time, the internal Palestinian leadership had been growing and organizing against the Israeli occupation. In fact, the destruction of the PLO infrastructure in Lebanon contributed to the emergence of a more organized grassroots, autonomous resistance movement in the West Bank and Gaza. This resistance movement gained prominence on the world stage with the outbreak of the first Intifada in December 1987. 
1977 to 1987, from Camp David to the First Intifada. Contrary to the gloomy predictions of many analysts, the unexpected victory of the right-wing Likud party in the 1977 elections resulted in a temporary de-escalation of the Arab-Israeli conflict. In November, just a few months after Likud came to power, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat surprised the Israeli government and public, as well as the Arab world and the international community, when he became the first Arab head of state to visit Jerusalem. The historic visit coincided with the emergence of a distinct peace movement in Israel, Peace Now. Founded in 1978 by reserve officers and soldiers, the group criticized the Israeli government for not doing enough to bring about peace with Egypt. Although Peace Now could not take much credit for this development, the Israeli and Egyptian governments began direct negotiations that year, and in 1979, Israel signed a formal, formal peace treaty with Egypt, often referred to as the Camp David Accords. The Camp David Accords have been viewed as significant in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because of the problematic manner in which they addressed the Palestinian dimension of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and because they enabled the United States to establish itself as a major peace broker in the region, and thus increase the sphere of U.S. power and influence. The Accords contained two documents, one of which was titled a framework for peace in the Middle East, and focused on the question of Palestine. Nevertheless, the document provoked strong negative reactions from the Palestinians due to its vague formulation of the nature of Palestinian autonomy and the failure to recognize the PLO as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. It soon became clear that the government of Menachem Begin had no intention of allowing the Camp David Accords to lead to an Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza Strip. To the contrary, in the 1980s, Israel pursued its plan to lay the foundation for the permanent retention of the occupied territories. The government expanded settlement construction, applied Israel, Israeli laws to Jewish settlers, residized residing in these areas, and took additional steps in such areas as transportation, communication, and economic activity to link the West Bank and Gaza more closely to Israel and to blur the 1967 border, often referred to as the Green Line. For Palestinians, this period was characterized by harsh economic conditions and growing dependency on Israel a shortage of adequate housing, a crisis in education and deteriorating school facilities, and many other problems that became more acute as a result of the Israeli occupation. Its reservations regarding the Camp David Accords notwithstanding, the PLO during this period began to signal its readiness for political settlement. Israel refused to acknowledge, let alone act on, the softening in the PLO's public statements and political agenda. Instead, it took actions to remove the remaining elected Palestinian leaders in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and to set up instead the village leagues, 
whose Arab members were appointed by Israel and thus lacked credibility among Palestinians. These actions prompted fierce, fierce resistance by Palestinians, resulting in serious clashes between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers in March, April, and May 1982. Another significant event during this period was the emergence of the popular communities, including women's groups and labor unions across the West Bank and Gaza Strip. These local committees were affiliated with the various factions of the PLO and established to address the service needs of the Palestinian community. In 1978, in an attempt to prevent the PLO's rise to power, the Israeli government attacked the PLO's headquarters and bases in Lebanon, triggering ongoing military confrontations across the Israeli-Lebanese border and heightened tensions between Israel and the Arab states. In June 1982, Israeli troops invaded Lebanon for the second time, instigating what became the most controversial war in Israel's history. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 marked a serious escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Israeli government's decision to inflict damage on the PLO's political and military bases in Lebanon st stemmed directly from the insistence of most members of the Israeli government at the time that the PLO was the source of unrest and trouble in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Israel's officially stated goals were to remove Palestinian fighters out of range of northern Galilee and to eliminate the PLO's political and military infrastructure in Lebanon. Yet, Israeli troops proceeded into Lebanon beyond the 25 miles initially announced, encircling and bombing Beirut in an attempt to force the evacuation of Arafat and the PLO. Israel agreed to stop the bombing only after the completion of the PLO's evacuation in late August 1982. The ceasefire did not last long. In mid-September 1982, following the assassination of newly elected Lebanese President Bashir Gamayel, Israeli troops returned to Beirut, occupying the entire city and sealing off the Sabra and Shatila ref refugee camps home to many Palestinians and poor Lebanese. These actions precipitated one of the most tragic events in the history of the conflict, the Sabra and Shatila massacre. The massacre was carried out by Lebanese Maronite Christians who were known for their hatred of Palestinians, with Israeli knowledge and, according to some accounts, even tacit approval. 40 hours later, when the camps were finally unsealed, the body count reached 700 to 800 people, according to Israeli estimates, the majority of whom were civilians, including many women and children. Continuing accounts indicated that the number of people murdered was perhaps as high as 1,500 or 2,000. The Israeli invasion of Lebanon reinvigorated existing Israeli peace groups, such as Peace Now and the Committee for Solidarity with Berzite, University. In addition, the invasion triggered the emergence of new protest groups, such as Parents Against Silence, 
Women Against the Invasion of Lebanon and Yesh Gavol. Literally, there is a limit. Questioning the legitimacy and morality of the war, Yesh Gavol called on Israeli soldiers to refuse to serve in Lebanon. In addition to hundreds of soldiers signing petitions declaring that they were prepared to take this course of action, a significant number of soldiers were sent to jail for their refusal to carry out an order. For the first time in Israel's history, Israeli citizens not only questioned their government's policies, but also took to the streets to voice their discontent. From the beginning of the invasion, a flurry of protest activities included vigils and demonstrations in the streets and on university campuses, anti-war petitions, and letters to the editor. The first national demonstration against the war on June 26, 1982, drew approximately 20,000 Israelis who demanded the immediate withdrawal of their country's army from Lebanon. A few months later, in response to the Sabra and Shatila massacre, Israel witnessed its largest demonstration ever. According to Peace Now and media reports, about 400,000 people participated. Political protest intensified following the publication of the report by a special inquiry commission set up to investigate Israeli involvement in the Sabra and Shatila massacre. The commission's report and the public debates it triggered coupled with the widespread anti-war demonstrations, which lasted until the partial Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in 1985, signaled a gradual erosion of the Israeli consensus regarding issues of peace and security. For Palestinians, the defeat of the PLO in Lebanon resulted in internal fragmentation and disputes among the different PLO factions as well as among the Arab countries that supported them. At the same time, the internal Palestinian leadership had been growing and organizing against the Israeli occupation. In fact, the destruction of the PLO infrastructure in Lebanon contributed to the emergence of a more organized grassroots autonomous resistance movement in the West Bank and Gaza. This resistance movement gained prominence on the world stage with the outbreak of the First Intifada in December 1987. 1987 to 1991. From a popular uprising to the Gulf War. The popular uprising was precipitated on December 8, 1987, by a car accident involving an Israeli army tank transporter colliding with a line of cars filled with Palestinian workers waiting at the military checkpoint in the northern Gaza Strip. The accident left four Palestinians dead and seven seriously injured, and rumors began to spread that the collision was a deliberate act carried out by Israel in retaliation for the killing of an Israeli salesperson in Gaza a few days earlier. The funerals of the dead turned into a massive demonstration. Palestinians continued to protest the following day and the demonstrations and resistance rapidly spread from the Gaza Strip to East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank. Although the accident is often viewed as the catalyst for the uprising, analysts agree that the conditions under which Palestinians lived resembled a pressure cooker, and thus, an explosion was imminent. 
The literal meaning of the Arabic word intifada is shaking off. For Palestinians, this word has symbolized not only their determination to shake off the Israeli occupation, but also their disillusionment with external forces, the UN, the United States, and the Arab States and Arab League, and the resolve to take matters into their own hands. Palestinian mobilization was unprecedented, not only in scope and magnitude, but in organization as well. People who took part in the mostly nonviolent actions that characterized the first intifada, from street demonstrations, tax resistance, and commercial strikes, to the establishment of agricultural cooperatives and alternative education centers, were extremely disciplined and came from various socioeconomic backgrounds, political affiliations, and all walks of life. Within weeks, the focus of the conflict and the world's attention turned to scores of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, led by a grassroots leadership who demanded an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands. The popular grassroots-led uprising also caught by surprise the PLO leadership, which was based mostly in Tunisia. On the other side of the Israeli-Palestinian divide, the Israeli government, stunned by the Intifada, was trying with great difficulty to formulate a military response to the uprising, while at the same time launching a public relations campaign designed to redeem Israel's image worldwide. The first Intifada marked a significant shift in power relations between Israel and the Palestinians. Although in strategic terms the advantage still lay with the Israeli side, Palestinians had the moral high ground. For the first time in the history of the conflict, the David versus Goliath analogy was used in scholarly analyses and media reports to refer to Israel as Goliath, the mighty aggressor, and to Palestinians as David, the underdog with a just cause determined to win against all odds. Palestinians were well aware that in order to fulfill their aspirations for self-determination, they needed to establish their own social, political, and economic infrastructure, a project prevented by the Israeli occupation. Toward this end, Palestinians established five principal popular committees to deal with agriculture, education, food storage, healthcare, and security. These committees, which operated both nationally and locally, soon became the most practical mechanism for political mobilization and for the preservation of the community. For many Palestinians, the committees represented the infrastructure of the future Palestinian state, or at least transient democratic institutions designed to govern the community during the first intifada. Palestinian women were actively involved in the establishment and operation of all the popular committees, which resembled the women's committees that had been active in the West Bank and Gaza Strip for more than a decade. During the first two years of the first intifada, 
The general atmosphere within the Palestinian community was extremely positive. The sense of purpose, unity, and self-reliance, coupled with the ability to mobilize international support for the Palestinian cause, empowered Palestinians and filled many with pride and hope. That a just and lasting diplomatic solution was in sight. Some analysts contend that the first intifada enabled Palestinians to renounce the armed struggle, recognize Israel's right to exist, and resolve to establish a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip alongside Israel. This dramatic transformation became evident in November 1988 when Arafat formally and publicly endorsed the two-state solution and proclaimed the independent state of Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. For the most part, the Israeli government ignored the significance of the 1988 declaration and efforts to achieve a political solution foundered. Instead, the Israeli government and military continued to respond to the uprising with repression and intransigence. As happened during the 1982 invasion of Lebanon, the government's actions were met with growing public criticism and protest. Although the main currents in the Israeli peace camp had already acknowledged the destructive effects of the occupation on Israel society long before the first intifada began, the uprising was a watershed for political mobilization on the Israeli left. Women and groups who were previously involved in solidarity work with Palestinians led the struggle, which centered around one or more of the following messages. End the occupation. Negotiate peace with the PLO. And create two states for two peoples. Although the peace movement was fairly successful in mobilizing public opinion, its efforts fell short of changing the Israeli government's policies. By late 1990, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict had settled into a grim war of attrition, as the world's attention was diverted to the crisis in the Gulf. The Gulf crisis began on August 2, 1990, with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and escalated into a war in January 1991. Contrary to the common view among scholars and media analysts that Palestinians made a poor political choice by siding with Saddam Hussein, the Palestinian position was far more complex. Throughout the crisis, the official Palestinian position underscored two principles denunciation of the Iraqi occupation, and opposition to a military solution to resolve the crisis. But Palestinian society is not monolithic, and some Palestinians expressed sympathy with Hussein for standing up to the Gulf states, the United States, and the West more generally, and especially to Israel. Nevertheless, and regardless of their view on the Gulf crisis, Palestinians criticized the double standards of the international community that utilized the UN and appeals to international law to demand Iraq's immediate withdrawal from Kuwait, while failing to apply the same measures to the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. 
The gold crisis and war contributed to the escalation of tensions between Israeli Jews and Palestinians. When the U.S.-led air attacks on Iraq began, Israel imposed a 24-hour curfew on Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, which lasted a full month and a half. Iraq responded to the air attack with largely ineffective but frightening Scud missile attacks on Saudi Arabia and Israel. Although only two Israelis died directly as a result of those attacks, the country was in a state of panic, and thousands of Israelis fled from the urban areas to the countryside to avoid a possible missile attack. Israelis' sense of helplessness was compounded by the fact that they were asked not to retaliate against Iraq because the United States feared that an Israeli attack might break the already fragile coalition. At the same time, on the other side of the Israeli-Palestinian divide, 1.5 million Palestinians were under total curfew, many on the verge of starvation, with no warning si sirens against scuds and no gas masks to protect them against the possibility of an airborne chemical attack. In addition to its effects on Israel and on Israeli-Palestinian relations, the Gulf War had grave implications for Palestinians both in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and in the Gulf. The long curfew caused great economic hardship, which intensified after Palestinians who had worked in Israel before the war lost their jobs. Palestinians in the occupied territories were also affected by the fate of relatives who had been working and living in the Gulf. Close to 400,000 Palestinians living in Kuwait lost their livelihoods and were forced once again to flee and look for refuge elsewhere. Since most of these people had been supporting family members in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, their unexpected displacement translated into a direct loss of income for many families. Moreover, external contributions from the Gulf states to the PLO and to Palestinian institutions, such as hospitals, schools, and universities, and social welfare organizations, stopped almost immediately.